welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 21. Now, normally this would be the moment where I say, I'm going to introduce my guest, but first let me plug Counterpunch. However, we have somebody very special with us today to help me to do that. So I'm not going to do my usual spiel, my usual hawking of the Counterpunch wares. Instead, I'm going to make that an integral segment in this week's episode because we are fortunate enough to have Counterpunch Managing Editor Jeffrey Sinclair with us. Uh, Jeffrey is probably known to just about every one of you uh, if you're listening to Counterpunch, if you're following Counterpunch regularly, but um, it is a very special time in the Counterpunch world, so I'm going to let Jeff talk a little bit about that. Uh, Without further ado, finally on the podcast, at long last, I have gotten him down from the pantheon of the Counterpunch gods and have come to Counterpunch Radio. Jeff Sinclair, welcome. Hey, Eric. It's great to be here. Great to be here on Counterpunch Radio. It is Um, great to have you. And uh, we're we're really, uh, you know, I mean, Counterpunch Radio has just been a blast. And uh, lots of accolades, lots of griping, you know, you know, which is exactly what we want. You know, Um, it would be uh, if there weren't, you know, the whiners and the complainers You'd say, you know, what's you know, what's Eric doing? But uh, it's got a wide audience. It's it's fun. It's combative uh, and and it's informative. So uh, it's you're you're right in uh, the counterpunch tradition. Great, great. Yeah, well, well, you know, what's interesting about that, Jeff, is that um, Counterpunch has this incredible ability to draw in a lot of people who will love it, and then something will be said or written or published, and they'll immediately turn on it and hate it, and then a week later they love it again. And in my mind, uh, that means you're doing something right. Well, I mean, that's what counterpunching is all about, isn't it? I mean, you, you lure them in and then, you know, you, you, you hit them in the kidneys. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, we're not here to, you know, to make, uh, you know, to make people's ha- happy or to sort of play to their prejudices. Um, it's, you know, we're here for other reasons. Um, kind of, you know, poking around in the mulch, as it were. Um, yeah, and what's 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 good about it, too, and I mean, I could think of a number of issues. I'm sure uh, the issue of uh, what gets published about Syria, what's been published about Ukraine, what's been published about Bernie Sanders. Uh, these are issues that are not only sharply divide people on the left uh, within the progressive community, socialists and whomever else, but I'm sure it polarizes people who regularly read Counterpunch. Well, I mean, I think there's some polarization even amongst the, uh, the the editors of Counterpunch. I mean, Josh and I don't have the same point of view on Syria, um, probably on on Ukraine either, and uh, and it's you know we don't we don't have one editorial point of view. We, we want to mix it up. Counterpunch yep. is just to a certain degree a kind of forum for the radical left, um, if there is such a thing, and in the U S these days. Um, and, uh, 
you know, let's let's fight it out. I yeah. mean, that's that's it's, that's one of the things that we, you know, Counterpunch has always been about. So, it's yeah. it's great. I love it in in so many ways because it's like you know, I mean, it's not even just the left. You know what I mean? You'll read a Paul Craig Roberts article followed by a Tariq Ali article followed by you know yeah. John Pilger and me and who who knows well, whatever else. It's pretty much all over the place, and I I really appreciate that for many different reasons, mainly because. I don't know of another uh, outlet that is quite like that. Uh, I, I'm not sure that that there is one now. Um, there may have been back in in, in the misty, <laughs> the misty, uh, the misty past. But you know, I think it's uh, and and I have to say that a lot of that is due to Alexander Coburn um, and the fact that Alex was really willing to read anyone um, and and see if there was something there. He was willing to speak to anyone um, and often got a lot of shit from mm-hmm. from the left for that, particularly the, the you know, his uh, colleagues at the nation could not understand, for example, Alex uh, speaking at at libertarian conventions. Um, there was one, you know, in particular, early on in Bush time, that was it was a symposium that had been uh, set up by antiwar.com, um, who we have a lot of friends with antiwar.com, but they're essentially the the anti-interventionist right, I guess you would call yep. it. And the Ron Paul um, right, more or less. Yeah, the Ron, yeah, the Ron Paul right. Um, and and then I don't think Ron Paul's a libertarian, but uh, um, you know the the Reason magazine mm-hmm. crowd. I mean, yep. We've always been on very good friends with them because we agree on a lot. Yep. And uh, uh, you know we're we're anti-war, we're anti-intervention, we're you know anti-cop. Um, anti-war on drugs, pro-civil liberties. There's a lot of common ground there. And uh, and they're also fun to hang out with, too. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes a lot more fun than, than the left, which seems often so paralyzed and hobbled by its uh, by the strictures that it imposes on itself. Can know? I just can I just interject very quickly that uh, I'm, I'm not lying here. Uh, Literally, as soon as you said the name Alex Coburn, I'm not kidding you, a thunderstorm began here in New York. <laughs> I swear to God, well, it's pouring rain. There's thunder and lightning out outside my window right now. So if people hear any rumbling, that's what that is. And uh, it's got to be. It's got to be Alex. Got to be. It's It's got to be the Coburn, the Coburn hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, but so- definitely not caused by by by. Uh, uh, by excessive uh, uh, carbon emissions, though. No, clearly not. It's <laughs> oh gosh, we're gonna go there. Right. Okay, now here's a question though. Tell me, I heard a very interesting rumor that there is something very important happening at Counterpunch starting uh, this week. Uh, you'll be listening to it. It happened. It started this Monday. What's happening at Counterpunch, Jeff? Yeah, we're gonna be hitting you up for money. And uh, it's our disgusting plea for cash. Um, we do it once a year. We only have a fundraiser when we need the money. When we say we need the money, we need it. So, you know, it's going to be very easy for people to donate. Um, we've got a lot of, you know, new sort of technical features on, on the new website. It's going to make, you know, giving us your, your hard-earned money um, 
a lot easier this year. Um, we know it's a pain in the ass. Uh, I, I certainly don't, you know, <laughs> like asking for money. It's not why I got into journalism, but uh, it has to be done. I mean, we, we don't have big foundations supporting us. We don't have any hedge funders that I know of dropping uh, a, a lot of bread on us. Uh, we're funded by our readers and we're funded by the subscribers to the magazine. And that's it. Um, and again, listeners, it's one of the reasons why on this show we're always pushing the magazine. It's one of the ways that you support Counterpunch, and this is now another way to support Counterpunch. When the time comes and uh, this fundraiser begins, it's a good moment to, to you know dig deep as best you can and say, you know what, I, I really believe not just in Counterpunch, but in independent media, in an alternative uh, perspective. I don't want to give my money to these corporate interests that control the media so think about that right now is the time exactly and it's it's easy you can do it online or you uh, if you've ever wanted to call petrolia california on the lost coast you can dial 1-800-840-3683 and uh and and talk to becky and deva or the uh the other crew down in petrolia who will you know take your uh your pledge your credit card your uh, your kidneys, whatever you want to donate. <laughs> uh, PayPal as well, Jeff? PayPal as well. Good, um, good. I'm not sure I know exactly what PayPal is, but, you uh, know. It's just, a, it's just a thing that funds uh, journalism projects. It's, it's exactly. It's, it's an easy <laughs> way to uh, get access to your bank account. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be mean to Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> um, all right, here's here's a question. We're going to get back to this this uh fundraiser. We're going to we're going to push it as much as we can, but I do want to talk about some something interesting here. You mentioned Alex Coburn and I think there are a lot of people who have come to Counterpunch in the last few years who might either maybe they know the name, but they don't know too much about him. So can you just, I mean, at least a little bit, tell people what Counterpunch is, like where it came from, how it grew to be what it is today? Uh, sure. Uh, the, the, the often forgotten player in this is Ken Silverstein, mm -hmm. uh, who I think is one of the greatest uh, American, well, just one of the greatest investigative journalists uh, that we have right now. Um, and Ken had been... Alex's intern at The Nation. He went off to Brazil and did uh, some of the best reporting on, on Lula and his movement in Brazil. Uh, ended up writing a book on that. Uh, was an AP stringer, I think, down there. And then, and then moved back to the States, um, to D.C. And started, he wanted to start a newsletter similar in format to like IF Stone's Weekly, mm -hmm. going back ways, um, but to fo focus on political corruption inside the Beltway. And um, he did. He called it Counterpunch. Um, great name. And I think Ken did it for about a year, and it was just a very, very hard to do this by himself. So he, he called upon his uh, his former mentor at The Nation, Alexander Coburn, and, uh, and Alex stepped on board, and um, Counterpunch kind of took off. And 
at about that same time, Alex and I had started writing together uh, a column called Nature and Politics. And uh, so I came along with Alex uh, on the counterpunch and was doing reporting. They were they were doing the editing and uh, and also a lot of uh, of the investigating stuff. And I would, you know, have maybe a story, an issue. But Alex was, you know, one of the great personalities you know, I've ever met um, one of one of the sharpest minds, the um, the greatest wits, and you know, probably you know the best writer of of English prose that that I've ever met. And he comes from a family of journalists, uh, Anglo-Irish journalists. His father, Claude Coburn, uh, one of the great British journalists. Uh, you know far left, far to the left, <laughs> and uh, who was also a fantastic novelist, um, Beat the Devil, his great novel, Beat the Devil, which was made into a film by John Huston, starring uh, Humphrey Bogart. And uh, Alex took the title of his column in The Nation from that novel, Beat the Devil. Alex is, has two brothers who are also world-class journalists, Andrew Coburn um, lives in D.C., uh, great documentary filmmaker, uh, is now the Washington editor at Harper's Magazine. And the, the youngest brother, Patrick Coburn, probably the world's greatest living war correspondent. Um, Patrick writes for us. He writes, you know, his paying gig is with The Independent mm-hmm. in London. Um, so extraordinary family um and i have started reading alex when i was in college at american university in dc and alex was writing for the village voice and his column with james ridgeway uh on the media was one of the first media criticism columns and it was must read It was the first thing most people read when they got the Village Voice each week. This was back when the Village Voice was a serious, you know, publication, not the corporate schlock that it's become today. I want to just say real quick for 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 listeners that um, part of the reason why I, I asked you, Jeff, to paint this picture a little bit is so that people get a flavor of where Counterpunch comes from. I mean, you're talking about the Nation, the Village Voice. I mean, these are two of the most Probably the most important uh, publications on the left in the United States in the in in the, you know the last century uh, to say the least. And um, this is Counterpunch is in many ways I think an inheritor of a certain uh, legacy, a certain tradition that is pretty much lost. I mean, you know, I'm not going to shit on the nation and the Village Voice necessarily. That's not what I want to do. But they're not they're they're a shell of what they were at some point in the in the distant past. And Counterpunch, I think, in many ways upholds the certain tradition. Well, yeah, no, I think yeah, you're definitely right. I mean. I mean, I, I hope that we uphold that tradition. I mean, the tradition's there, and that's, you know, our challenge is to live up to some really exalted standards when you're talking about, you know, uh, Coburn's writing and, and Ken Silverstein, but going back even before the Village Voice, and, you know, I didn't, this was before my time, but the real origins were 
in a publication in Washington, D.C. that started in the, in the late 1960s by James Ridgway and one of the other great, great journalists in America, Robert Sherrill and Andrew Kopkind. They were all working together on hard times. They were reporting on the radical civil rights movement, the origins of the anti-war movement, uh, exposing the corrupt, corruption of, of LBJ's regime and then and Nixon. Um, and these were three of the most talented radical journalists that we've ever seen. And then they import Coburn from, from London to join their team. And uh, ultimately, Ridgeway and, and Alex go off to the Village Voice, and Kopkine goes off to be the managing editor of the nation, and probably the greatest editor the nation has ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, after Alex was really, the Voice treated him terribly, um, and he left the Voice, and he brought him to the nation. So there's this there's this continuity um, that goes back all the way to you know the the the, the mid and late sixties in D.C. and the birth of of this I would call it really was the birth of the new journalism and it's not they weren't most people now think of the new journalism as being Gonzo you know Hunter Thompson mm-hmm. um, and they were there at the same time and it was journalism really with a point of view and there theirs was, you know, the point of view from the radical left and, you know, that informed their perception of the anti-war movement, uh, the civil rights movement, liberalism, uh, you know, I mean, you know, and, they, liberalism was their enemy, you know? I well, mean, and, and, and one thing that I think is that's an important point and I, I don't want to understate the importance of it because, um, my understanding, and I mean, you know, for me, this is a little bit, uh, I guess, history, but, you know, Alex lived it. Um, my understanding of it is part of the reason, if not the main reason, why he was essentially run out of town from the Village Voice was because of the Israel issue and because of what he wrote about Israel and about Zionism and about yeah. treatment of Palestinians. And he wrote it at uh, a very critical time in history in New York City, which is so deeply uh, rooted in a pro-Zionist perspective, at least within the liberal establishment. And I think that in many ways you can find the the roots of a very important left uh, tradition with respect to that issue and with respect to a lot of these other issues. And in many ways, Alex embodied that and uh, Counterpunch is inheriting that legacy as well. Yeah, we're inheriting the legacy. We're and also the <laughs> inheriting the, vit- the vitriol. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and you're right, but it didn't even, he didn't even have to be, you know, uh, critical of the Zionist state. All he had to do was say something positive about Palestinians. Right. I mean, that yes. was just how toxic that issue was in, you know, New York of the late seventies and, and early eighties. And we're talking, post- but you have to give the nation credit yep. that, you know, cop kind, cause the nation is a, a, you know, a New York liberal publication and it it was in the early 80s when they brought Alex on after going through this shitstorm and 
in the New York press. Uh, they, you know, they took him on and well, it, it, it certainly was to their benefit. I mean, I, I think the nation's readership maybe at about that time was somewhere around, you know, 20,000 and within a, just a few years of Alex being, um, you know, their premier columnist, they were, I think they, they went up to like 80,000, you know, maybe even a hundred thousand. Uh, I mean, so, you know, Alex and, and Copkind, I think really saved the nation. Um, and, and they enlivened it. I mean, you know, the, the, the quality of the prose just went through the roof. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to trace that, uh, you know, that trajectory a little bit. And again, part of the, part of the other reason why, uh, I wanted to bring up this issue as well is because, you know, I mention a lot here on this show, this issue of the, uh, what I call the pseudo alternative media and, um, what I mean by that is that there are a lot of outlets now, especially with, you know, the Internet and social media and such. There are a lot of these outlets out there that really kind of present themselves as, quote unquote, the alternative media. But in various ways, they're mainly just watered down versions of the corporate media, maybe with a somewhat more oppositional perspective on on certain issues. But uh, on a lot of key issues, especially issues of war and peace, um, they are more or less the left flank for the the establishment and i think that counterpunch has managed um thankfully i would say to really be opposition to really be alternative and not just pseudo alternative when it comes to especially these tough issues well i mean we kind of have the field to ourselves on those um <laughs> we're enough. not the, we're not the new york times light uh we're, or we're not the sort of new york times left you know um, and now why, why is that? Well, I mean, I had the good fortune to be, you know, <laughs> to be tutored by Coburn and he would never tolerate that for a second. But also I think most of our writers have, you know, uh, have grown up reading their Chomsky, you know, I mean, they know that uh, the, the New York times is a, a, a kind of daily, uh, tab of propaganda and uh uh and and so we don't do that you know you're not you're not going to find you know uh paul krugman you know columns uh you know when you come to counterpunch you're just not going to get it um we you know we're offering something different unique um new voices new radical voices from i think uh they're, they're different points of view, but uh, none of them are in the mainstream. Um, and and if we if we are in the mainstream, then you know you know kick us in the ass and you know um, you know get us to move because yeah. that's that's not where we want to be. And I've I've been reading Counterpunch for a long time. My own political evolution. Um, I mean, it's not 100% because of Counterpunch, but some of it is. And I can almost trace my own uh, political evolution, ideological development to kind of navigating through a lot of stuff that I've encountered in Counterpunch. There's stuff I used to love that now I can't even look at anymore. There's other stuff that used to make me recoil. And now I look forward to reading it all the time, uh, you know, from an anarchist position to a more socialist position and vacillating between 
between, you know, the this kind of left and that sort of left and whatever. And I think that there's probably, hopefully, a lot of people who are listening to us right now who are doing that, maybe not even realizing it, but are doing that daily as they're consuming Counterpunch. Uh, no, I, I know there are because I, I, I'll get their, their emails, you know, just furious objections to, you know, some some piece that uh, Paul Craig Roberts wrote or something. Don't you know that, you know, he was the former assistant <laughs> secretary of the Treasury? I say worse than that. He used to be the editorial page editor of The Wall Street Journal. Did you know that? <laughs> um, well, and then two days later, well, Paul Craig Roberts makes a hell of a lot of sense on on. <laughs> On, in this column, and I said, yeah, isn't it amazing how much he's learned in two days? But we all have these, right? We all have these internal filters or, or, uh, or alarms that go off because, you know, we've, we've all been brainwashed. And, uh, um, and so, you know, we'll see a name or, you know, a headline or a phrase and, and we tend to stop reading. And, mm-hmm. you know, what we're, you know, challenging both our readers and our writers, because, um, you know, I mean, there are some writers that will, you know, sort of look at the, the daily menu of stories and they'll see their byline next to somebody, you know, who, you know, they've despised in the past or something and get un- uncomfortable about it. But, uh, um you know, they, they tend to get over it, but yeah. So work, you know, work your way through it. I don't, you know, I mean, sure. There's a lot of stuff on counterpunch that, that I disagree with, you know, but that's okay. I mean, read it and be, you know, reconfirm your prejudices or, you know, hopefully you'll learn something and you, you may not buy, you know, all of it, you know, um, but maybe you'll get something out of it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, part of the, Part of the thing as well is that um, I think that I mean I know that I know that you're on social media, but you're sort of averse to it as as I am, as a lot of people are. Um, there's a compartmentalization that happens when you engage in social media. When you're constantly online, you're reading the stuff that is always reconfirming what you think and. Counterpunch somehow manages to, I think, in some ways at least, although it's very much swimming, you know, uh, uh, upstream on this, but break down some of that a little bit because if you go through Counterpunch, it forces you to get outside of your comfort zone. It forces you to get outside of your Facebook feed, you know, to <laughs> to use the sort of silly <laughs> example. And yeah. um, I think that that is also really important, actually. Well, how else do you not stagnate as, I, I mean, I don't, can we say the word movement? I don't think we, you know, I don't think we can. I mean, there, where yeah. is, is there an anti-war movement? I mean, Jesus, uh, no, no. we just, you know, Obama just incinerated a hospital in Afghanistan run by doctors without borders. Where are the protests? Yep. You know, why, I mean, if Bush had done that, you might have a hundred thousand people protesting in New York City. Yep. And now there's nothing. You know, it is the same group of Quakers and Catholic workers um, and hardcore, you know, anti-war activists out on the street corners. The same, you know, six or seven of them, you know, who are there, you know, every week. And have been, you know, for 
as long as I've been alive, I think, because yeah. that is their tradition. And that's what it boils down. That's all there really is of an anti-war movement. You can't just be an anti-war movement when the Republicans are waging war. Well, you can and, if you're a movement that's uh, funded and operated by the NGO Democratic Party establishment. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you it. go. And uh, so, I, so I would say, you know, it would be different if we were committing sort of heresies against the left when there actually was a left, which was, you know, uh, on the cusp of taking power or doing something, anything, then you might, you know, have a, you know, some kind of an argument. I, I don't think much of one that, you know, we're allowing, you know, you know, heresies uh, to appear on counterfeiture. That, that, there just isn't. You know, we're in search of some new ideas, some new methods, something that is going to ignite a resistance in this country. You know, there's if you go through the list of regular counterpunch contributors, I mean, you just it just made me think of it. Um, you mentioned the the bombing of this hospital in Afghanistan. I mean, regularly counterpunch is, is publishing articles from Kathy Kelly, who was on uh, counterpunch radio with me a few weeks back, or I guess a, a few months back. And um I don't know where else you go to read Kathy, you know, or to read uh, people like her providing that sort of a perspective that, I mean, look, I mean, I, I understand that there are some other outlets that might publish things here and there, but I mean, Counterpunch does it regularly and with a with a certain authority that I think is, qu quite frankly, it's, it's necessary because, look, I mean, at, at this point, just as you mentioned, there is no movement and sometimes it requires a bit of a slap in the face. Well, let's, let's say this, Eric, there are no other people like Kathy Kelly. For sure. I mean, she no is doubt. sui, sui generis. I mean, she is uh, one of a kind and, you know, geez, she's always in harm's way. And, you know, uh, I mean, she, she is just one of the most remarkable people, most remarkable people I've ever met. Um, I'll tell you a story about Kathy. She was, she was out here. Um, I don't know. It's probably been 10 years ago or so. And she was spending a week here in Oregon city with, uh, Kimberly and, and Boomer, our Australian shepherd. Um, and I, and, and she was telling us that, uh, she was about to go do a, a a stint in federal prison, and she said that she was, you know, for some some something like trespassing at a nuclear weapons site or something, mm -hmm. you know, really really evil like that. Um, and she was really looking forward to it because she was going to be doing her time over Christmas, and she'd never spent Christmas in prison before. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> It's just, uh, you know, just a remarkable, just a remarkable woman. And, uh, yeah, so we've been publishing not just Kathy, but, you know, people from, you know, her and her movement, which is, you know, I mean, she's not a, a uh, I mean, as remarkable as she is as an individual, what Kathy has, you know, spent her life doing is building a movement and teaching people how to be, anti-war activist inside of a war zone and whether that was in Baghdad during uh, Bush one's 
cruise missile attacks, whether it was in Central America, whether it's in Afghanistan during the, the start of, of Bush's war on Afghanistan. You know, that's when you know that you are an anti-war activist. And how many of them were there? Yeah. How many of them stood up right after 9-11 and opposed the war on Afghanistan? I think they were there were just a handful of us. Um, and how many people are opposing that war now? Yeah. Just a handful of us. That's right. Um, Billions have come and gone from from, uh, you know, the streets of New York or, you know, the mall in Washington, D.C. But the wars have gone on. And where are they now? I mean, that's a question we ask all the time on Counterpunch. That's right. Where are you now? Because, you know, the war is going on in Yemen. It's going on in Syria. It's going on in Ukraine. It's going on in Afghanistan. It's going on. We had, you know, coups that uh, we've attempted in Venezuela a couple of times, uh, successfully on Honduras. Yep. Uh, the beat goes on, you know, and it doesn't matter who's at the helm of the empire. And you know? co- covertly all over Africa. <laughs> yes. Um yeah, well, okay, let's take a break. But before we do, just a reminder, again, this is fundraising time. It is time to dig deep as as, as much as you can and really support Counterpunch. Um, such an important project, such an important perspective to keep out there. Uh, the number, again, is 1-800-840-3683 if you want to donate um, via phone. Of course, also on Counterpunch's website, use the PayPal button, whatever other options there are available to you. Um, So I'm going to continue the conversation with Jeff on the other side of the break. Um, You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Stick with us. Life is a debt that must someday be
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with um, Counterpunch editor Jeffrey Sinclair. And, um, I mean, we're pushing Counterpunch a lot. We've been talking about it. I've probably said the word Counterpunch eight trillion times already, um, as if you didn't know what you were listening to. Uh, But I do want to touch on some other issues, and I want to give a little bit of a personal perspective on it. One of the things that I've uh, struggled with, struggle might be (laughs) overstating it, but one of the things that I think has been a failing of mine personally over my own political evolution has been focusing on a lot on issues of imperialism and war and and, uh, a lot of these issues and economic things as well. And to to the point where I I feel personally, if I'm reflecting on it, that I've neglected some other issues, especially environmental issues. Um, I haven't really been as up to date on them. I haven't really been as militant on them as I probably should be. And that's one thing that for me personally, Counterpunch has done and has helped me with is to keep issues like that in the forefront of my mind. And Jeff, I just I want to commend you on that particular aspect of your personal work is that I think that your stuff is some of the best and always keeping that in the forefront of our thinking and Counterpunch is really good about environmental issues and bringing them front and center for the left. Well, thanks for that, Eric. Uh, you know, I mean, that's, you know, my background is in environmental activism, environmental journalism. Um, they sort of uh, David Brower, who is uh, <clears throat> one of the great sort of environmentalists ever, um, kind of shaped the the modern environmental movement in a lot of ways. The, the best parts of it um, kind of plucked me right out of college and and put me to work for him at Friends of the Earth. Um doing stuff on some Chesapeake Bay, nuclear freeze movement, uh, anti-nuclear power, uh, right around the time Three Mile Island happened. Um, and uh, so it's always uh, been one of the issues that uh, that I've been writing about, that I care deeply about. Um, and uh, Alex and I met, really, uh, and started working together on environmental issues and uh you know i mean alex after all people couldn't understand it at the nation that you know why in the world had alex given up life in manhattan to live in probably the remote the most remote part of northern california uh on the lost coast um right one of the most beautiful places in north america they, they couldn't understand that it was like going over the edge of the planet or something but uh Alex loved nature. I love nature. It was uh, uh, one of the things that uh, we had in common from the beginning. And uh, we started working together really uh, in probing Bill Clinton's environmental record um, as governor of Arkansas. And uh, at the time, I was editing a a radical environmental magazine out here in Portland. And Alex had read uh, a piece that I'd written, called me up on the phone. And, you know, it was the beginning of a beautiful relationship. Um, and uh, for many years, we, we wrote a, a weekly column called Nature and Politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Clinton administration provided us with a lot of, uh, of fodder for that, uh, particularly, uh, you know, with the presence of Al Gore, the ozone man, um, sort of, uh, <laughs> betraying what legacy he had, what pitiful legacy he had as a, a um, 
as an environmental uh, hero uh, from almost day one. So that was, you know, eight years of, of really rich uh, source material. And uh, so it's not only just, you know, writing about the environment, but then beginning to look structurally at the nature of the modern environmental movement, the corporatized environmental movement, um, yeah. how the environmental movement changed um, as as the Clintonoids took power. And uh, you'll know there have been many dark years for, for the... Uh, the environmental movement during Reagan's two terms and Bush one's uh, four years. Those were some, some bleak times. Uh, but the movement was, you know, fairly feisty and it, uh, you know, it, it certainly fought James Watt and, and uh, you know, ran him out of Washington. And I think if you, if you look at it, basically fought, you know the the Reagan administration and and the Bush administration to a standstill. Um, probably probably did a better job. Almost certainly did a better job than than the labor movement in fighting off um, those right wing assaults. But all of that changed really after the election of Clinton, and it was you know one loss, major loss after another for the environmental movement. And so, you know, my challenge really was to look at why that happened. Um, and, you know, I wrote a couple books about that and, you know, many, many articles, uh, lost a lot of friends, former colleagues in the environmental movement, couldn't believe that, uh, you know, from their point of view, I was turning on them. Um, and I, you know, honestly, I didn't think I was, you know, my, my heart was still in the same place. I, you know, I live out in here, out here in Oregon because I like, uh, spotted owls and 500 year old trees and, uh, salmon, um, and the quality of life here. And it was put in peril, not so much by Reagan and Bush, but by Clinton and Gore, um, and, and their co-option of the big environmental groups uh, who came to be known as gang green. Um, yeah. And it's, it's that in many ways, Clinton and the Clinton administration embodies something, uh, you know, the, the, the corporatization of this movement, you know, I mean, we, we talk about this quote unquote, the corporate Democrats, which is in many ways, something that, uh, Clinton is almost the brand name for. And, um, it's that corporatization of everything really, because it wasn't just the environmental movement, which was devastated during the Clinton administration. I mean, look at the telecom act of 96, which led to the, sure. the, the monopolization of the media that we're looking at today. Uh, that's another example. There's, I mean, there's countless of them. Um, you know, the uh, the removal of Glass Steagall led to the financialization of the entire economy, which we've seen now. So, uh, in many ways, um, you know. Clinton and the Clinton administration sort of consolidated the work of Reagan and Bush, and uh, the environmental movement was no exception. Right? No, no, it wasn't. And uh, you know, I, you know. Clinton gets a lot of the blame for it and he deserves as much as he gets, but it, it began earlier. And, but the reason, you know, that this, the, the neoliberal, you know, uh, counter revolution 
really began in, you know, I think with Carter, for sure, but it didn't manifest itself really until after the 92 elections because of, you know, 12 years of Reagan and Bush, right? yeah. or it was there, but it wasn't visible, um, you know, to most people on the left, exactly, you know, that the ground was shifting beneath their feet. And so it came as, as quite a shock. It was disguised as Republicanism. It was disguised. It was disguised. As... Well, and, and to some extent, it was, you know, they had to fight it. You know, yeah. they didn't, you know, uh, you know, that was like the iron hand of Reaganism, you know, yeah, and everybody yeah, yeah. was. And this is, you know, I think one of the this is one of the things that people tend not to understand is that there was a resistance. One of my favorite lines from Foucault um, is that uh, resistance unites us. And it can, you know, it confused the far left and the far right, the libertarian, you know, uh, right and the anarchist left, um, and a lot of other things, you know. And so Reagan had that, you know, that effect of uniting the resistance. Um, so they had to be fought. And, you know, even in the Bush one time, things like NAFTA, you know, NAFTA was his idea, you know, it was, it came out of his administration, but it was, it was fought and killed every time they brought it up by a united coalition mm-hmm. of environmentalists, labor, human rights groups, you know, the Democratic Party, Democratic think tanks, you know, they all fought it off. Um, it took Clinton to push NAFTA through, and you saw the capitulation of the environmental movement, some of the human rights groups, um, and a lot of the Democratic Party establishment. Um, you know, what, this what scenario I... played out, you know, again and again, and you know, on the environment, on civil rights, on civil liberties. People forget, you know. I mean, we like to blame the Patriot Act, for example, on on Bush and Cheney and Ashcroft. All they did was, I mean, it was sitting there, you know. The Patriot Act had been written during Clinton time. Most of it was already, of course, in effect under the the Counterterrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, you know, passed by Clinton. One of the most uh, regressive civil liberties pieces of legislation in in the history of the country. Yeah. And you know that was that was pushed through by Clinton. And you know we we forget it because we want to blame you know the 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 known evil. Well, and to a a certain extent, the establishment really wants us to do that. The establishment wants us to see it that way to, you know, the Democrats could never have come up with something like the Patriot Act, could they? Oh, of course not. <laughs> they just uh, had to go along. You know? Yeah, ex- exactly. Well, well, what choice did they have? I mean, it was nine eleven for God's sake. Right. Um, I want to bring it. I want to bring it forward though, because you know all of this is important. You know what happened in the Clinton administration and and all of that. But I think that to some degree, you know, things like climate change, for example. I mean, it was an issue. I I remember it from that time period. Uh, you know, I know that you know it it existed. People talked about it to varying degrees, but. I think there's a sense now that what we're looking at in the world today from an environmental perspective is is 
if not even it's not even almost a crisis it's it's a looming catastrophe and i don't think that 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 idea had uh, been rooted in the collective consciousness in the us or in the world generally but i think it is now so i want to talk a little bit about that i mean you're, you've written, you know, about the water crisis in California and, and, and what's how that the trickle down effect, pardon the pun, eh, for Oregon and so forth, the wildfire situation. I mean, all of these things, it almost seems like uh, the, the this climate catastrophe and all of the, you know, ripple effect of that, it's 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 so much it's so front and center now that not only is it unavoidable, I almost see that it's it's inescapable. Well, I mean, the reality of what's happening is inescapable. The politics is still easily escapable. Sure. <laughs> uh, I mean, because because uh, who's doing anything about it? I mean, it, uh, I mean, all of the solutions that have been offered are the same old, you know, are neoliberal solutions, really. So, yeah. um, so yes, and I I do think uh, yes, I think it is a it is a catastrophe. The catastrophe is already unfolding, but. To speak of it in catastrophic terms, I think is uh, well. It's it just makes people unproductive. You know, it makes un- people hopeless. You know? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> no, I, I mean, agree. I, I feel the same way. Um, and the the thing that I like the most about the environmental movement, um, or at least fighting for the environment, is that it's fun. I mean, you know, my environmental hero is Edward Abbey, and and he he's always said that you know, I mean. Fighting for the environment should be fun. Number one, being out in nature is fun, and radical environmentalism can be really fun if you do it the right way. Um, but in order for that to happen, you ought to be—you have to be an amateur at it, right? In other words, you have to do it because you love it, and you're not doing it because of a paycheck. And most of the environmental movement now uh, are—they're suits, right? Yeah, they're—they—they've gone to. You know, Stanford or Berkeley or the Ivy League, they've got, you know, $200,000 worth of, of uh, student loans to pay off. Uh, they don't want to risk their paycheck for anything. Most of the passion when it comes to the environment now is on the right wing side, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, all of the passion is, or most of it's gone out of the environmental movement and certainly the professional environmental movement. And so, I mean, the groups that I like, you know, now are still the small feisty groups, you know, whether they're, you know, some uh, kids who are members of the Lakota tribe in, you know, South Dakota and Montana fighting to protect grizzly bears, which is one of the most exciting, you know, new movements I've seen. Um, Or, you know, great old broads for wilderness, you know, fighting to protect wildlands, you know, in in Utah of all places. Well, of course, because Utah has some of the most beautiful and imperiled land you know, in the country. But, you know, like 75-year-old grandmothers out there taking radical action to stop, uh, you know, a strip mine from the book Calypse. I mean, no, that's, that's exciting stuff. But you're not going to find that uh, in the Sierra Club now or the Wilderness Society or, you know, one of National the National Wildlife Society or, you know, the World Wildlife Fund, one of my favorite targets. I, you know, I uh, wrote a piece about them saying that they basically were purveyors of panda porn 
you know, <laughs> you know, it's like naked pandas, you know, they're sending out for money, you know, it's like, it's um, just got ridiculous. So. One of the things that I noticed, and it just occurred to me, um, as you were speaking about it, the real, you know, energies that, that come through when it comes to environmental issues are at least in my mind, from what I see, deeply individualized. And I think that this is uh, in many ways a real problem. And it kind of gets at what you were talking about in terms of a lot of the environmentalism that you see coming from the far right, uh, especially, that everything is individualized. That when they talk about pesticides, they talk about how they're polluting just their own bodies. My, I don't want my children to be right. you know, toxic. I don't want to eat toxic food. It's not right. about you know, what the... What the the cumulative effect of that is on society as a whole. It's not about activism against the, the, the corporation for anything other than you're poisoning me. You know, and I would say that's true for the GMO issue. It's true for, I mean, everything from vaccines and, and you know, people polarized on that issue, but I'm not even getting into the polarization of it, just more the fact that everything is individualized. And I think that that speaks to this collapsed movement there is no cohesive general movement it's all about me well yeah i mean it's it's basically sterling hayden's character in dr strangelove and his precious bodily <laughs> yes. fluids isn't it i mean uh, and it's that kind of you know it's that kind of you know paranoid mentality has has sort of has gripped America in a lot of ways. And, you know, I mean, and rightfully so, you ought to be paranoid because almost everything seems to be arrayed against you. Yep. That's, it's one of the dangers of uh, uh, catastrophist thinking, right? Um, is that it tends to prohibit you from looking structurally at a lot of these problems. Yep. And God forbid that any of these environmental groups would uh, think of mentioning capitalism as being the driving force between yeah. you know behind most of these problems perish the thought uh, it's just you you can't you can't say it in polite company and wish to get your uh, your grant renewed it's it's not going to happen um and you know you i mean most environmental groups they're not funded by their members anymore they're funded by grants from large foundations, many of them, you know, their money originally came from oil companies. And, you know, whether that's the Rockefeller Fund or W. Alton Jones or, you know, the biggest player these days, the Pew Charitable Trust. Um, the Ford Foundation. I, yes, these, these are, you know, big foundations, you know, from the moneyed elite who are, you know, believers in capitalism. Yeah. Right. So well, everyone's an NGOcialist. There you go. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I think you, you, you do have, uh, so you, you have several forces that are occluding um, a sort of penetrating point of view on the real drivers of most of these environmental issues. And also, going hand in hand with that is the fact that the actions that you're permitted to take when you're on the foundation, you know, dole are very, very limited. 
right? They're yeah. very narrow. It's lobbying. Um, it's like, uh, I mean, maybe there will be a kind of photo op arrest where you, you know, <clears throat> Bill McKibben is, uh, you know, spends 15 minutes in a uh, designer jail cell with his cell phone taking a selfie comparing himself to Martin Luther King in the Birmingham jail. I mean, it's <laughs> nauseating. <laughs> it's nauseating and it's ridiculous at the same time. A selfie uh-huh. from a Birmingham jail. I like that. Yeah. That's well, cool. not a, he's a, he wasn't in Birmingham. Yeah, he was well, comparing whatever. himself. Well, yeah, he whatever. In, yeah. While well, he was in like the Georgetown jail. Or a, a selfie from a Georgetown jail. <laughs> the name of his memoir. Um, you know, and, and he's not the worst, believe me. I mean, I like to make, to poke fun at McKibben, but he's far from the worst. Um, when you think but, about you know, when you think about the 1930s, for example, which was the height of you know the socialist and communist and and radical left movement in the United States, it was a movement that that coalesced, uh, I would say, to a large extent because of. Uh, the international situation and the economic situation. In other words, the material reality, the circumstances of the time necessitated the growth of this movement. It fostered the growth of this movement. And yet today, where we have these really, I mean, disastrous circumstances when it comes to these environmental issues, climate change and pesticides and groundwater pollution, fracking, all of these things, you would think that all of this should help to con- coalesce a movement, and yet I feel like the opposite has happened. Well, it has. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, what is different between, you know, in terms of, you know, material circumstances between now and the 30s? I mean, the, the economic situation is as dire, you know, as it's been in many decades and getting worse, Right. Oh yeah, I mean, and, and there's no chance there's no chance of improvement anytime soon yeah. either. And, and people talk about oh, you know, I mean, you know, they're looking well, you know, with this, you know, all of this sort of bellicose talk about Russia. You know, we may be heading toward World War Three. I'm like, we've been in World War Three for you know 15 years at least. I mean, we're at war all across the planet, and you know, a lot of Democrats and Republicans want us to go to. I mean. If you listen to the Republican debates, and I know that's a challenge, you know, fortunately in Oregon, you know, we can smoke as much pot, you know, as we want <laughs> and we can sit through these things. And uh, um, But basically, it's like a new list of countries to go to war against, you know, I mean, that's their solution to, to every problem. And that's Hillary's solution. Yeah, well, it's it's insane that on that issue, in many ways, Donald Trump is to the left of everybody else. Exactly. I mean, on you know, not just that issue. It's, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. sad to on, say. on healthcare. Um, too. I don't yeah. want to get in. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't yeah. want. I mean, obviously, we'll never make any money from our fun fundraiser if I go off on Trump. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, the oh, you mean the you, you mean Trump? <laughs> you mean the funder? You mean the fundraiser where they can call one eight hundred eight four zero three six eight three or donate through the PayPal yeah. button on counterpunch dot org. That one? That's the one. Okay, great. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Um, (laughs) Yeah, so we have global environmental threats, right? Climate change, global environmental threat. We have huge regional threats. Uh, How about the lack of water in not just the interior west anymore, but uh, across California, you know, um, 
Oregon, even the Northwest. We've been in a drought here. This is this is Oregon. This is the, you know, the rainforest coast. Oregon and Washington. Um, I mean, I can look outside our window at our big super volcano, Mount Hood, which is completely bare of snow, and the glaciers are in complete retreat. Uh, it's it's crazy. Um, it should be scary, um, and it's just not a, a political issue. And what's insane, what's crazy about that too is that not only is a place like California in a water crisis, uh, uh, but I mean that is by definition a food crisis too. I mean you're talking about massive agricultural land that keeps pumping groundwater now to make up for the lack of like you know snowpack water from the Sierra Nevada and wherever else they're getting it from. I mean you're talking about issues that are so deeply interrelated. You know I had uh, um, Counterpunch contributor Robert Hunsiker on this show and we touched on some of that as well that. One thing that even even people who are active on environmental issues fail to really make a a good case on is the fact how interrelated all of these issues are. I mean, really, they are. Yeah, they're they're absolutely interrelated. Uh, I think they've always been interrelated, but uh, but now as they have metastasized, They are they're completely interrelated. And we can say that in in a theoretical sense. I mean, there always have been, you know, sort of holistic approaches to the environment. But I think even people like, you know, um, you know, Paul Ehrlich and others who back in uh, the late 60s were talking about the desertification of of California. Um, I I think, uh, you know, they're. I think stunned by by how quickly and how um, ruthlessly <laughs> this has taken place, uh, with no sense of political urgency uh, from anyone. And you would you would think that at some point the the capitalist class would um, step up to the plate. Because it's their, you know, their economic interests are under threat. Um, but uh, but you don't see that. You don't see you don't. that for for no, a number for a number of reasons. Primarily, I think that there is well. Let's say to some degree there's a level of delusion going on there. I think that's true. I think that uh, to. I think that the, the the disease of neoliberalism in general has infected their brains to the point where they literally don't even believe in the concept of uh, what they're going to leave behind for their children. I mean, they literally don't even think that way. No, they don't. And and plus, let's be honest there there are no there are no easy fixes. You know, we're 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 far beyond that point in time. Well, and also so there are easy fixes, and we don't. There's no. We don't have the political structure in this in this country to to even uh, impose easy fixes anymore. Well, and that's actually what I was about to say too. Is one of the things that I mentioned with uh, with Robert Hunziker when I had him on the show was that you have in China. I mean, they just make the, they just pass the law. They just say this is the law. We're we're cutting coal. Coal's done, and it's done for the most part. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It, it, right. In the so. 
China goes from this massive polluter to far better <laughs> on the environment yeah. than the United States uh, almost overnight, literally. And, and and I think India is going to be making you know the same decisions, and 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 probably Brazil, and we are, you know, our 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 political system is completely uh, immobilized. One other thing and I got to talk about. You can look yeah. at, yeah, uh, I was just thinking, looking at South Carolina, right? So what do they, they have? I mean, they keep talking about the thousand year flood. Well, that's bullshit. You know, I mean, these, <laughs> these things are going to be happening like once every 10, you know, years if they're lucky. Yep. They've had, what, nine dams fail and they have 17 dams that could fail if they get another inch of rain or probably will fa- fail the next, you know, thunderstorm they have. For sure. Um, and what do we hear from them? <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> you know, what do we hear I, about that? I mean, uh, I expect New York to get a Hurricane Sandy uh, probably every few years or so. I mean, at, at, at this rate, I think that that's a quite likely scenario. One other thing I want to touch on, too environmentally um look a lot of people uh, no, okay so there is no movement we know that okay there is no organized mobilized political force on this issue but people do talk about climate change there's a lot of talk i mean you hear it all the time people write about it you know some of the biggest foundation funded left you know organizations and activists are really push the issue but you know what they don't talk about and almost nobody does Fukushima. I mean, it is, it is literally, it is like a blacklisted issue. I mean, to even talk about it is almost like, you know, to open yourself up to being called, you know, like a, a reptilian lizard people conspiracist oh. or something, you know? Well, because Fukushima is their solution. I mean, how can you talk about, you know, uh, the ongoing crisis in Japan when nuclear power is your solution to climate change? And this is, you know, across the board. I mean, you know, it's one of the reasons, you know, George Monbiot is a a sort of favorite target of mine, um, who's seen as, you know, a kind of heroic figure by much of the left. Um, I mean, absolutely committed uh, to nuclear power as the solution to climate change. And it's not. I mean, even even if it worked, you know, in the the way their their fantasies would would have it work it is not a solution to climate change um but also look nuclear power nuclear weapons they're the same that's the same industry yep and yep. we don't want to talk about either one of them that's right do we we, we have nukes i don't know didn't we get rid of those I, you know i thought reagan got rid of all those no i mean the Obama administration is is you know, new generation of nuclear weapons. You know, mini nukes. Uh, we have a story about them. You know, in Counterpunch, um, this weekend, latest weekend edition. And you know, they're foisting these on the NATO countries, and uh, it's essentially you know our market in uh, weapons of mass destruction. The only and, conversation of nuclear nuclear weapons is the potential at some point in the future that maybe possibly Iran might consider getting one. Exactly. And, you know, Alex's idea, um, which I finally came around to. I mean, I was, you know, 
I mean, I got my start in the no nukes movement, nuclear freeze, get rid of them all. But his point of view, and uh, I think I finally came around to it, was that every country yep. should have one I, nuclear weapon. That's what I believe, too. Yep. Um, and, you know, it makes it makes a, a lot of, I mean, is it, if anything makes sense in, in the nuclear world, um, you know, that makes as much sense as anything else. I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, okay, we are running out of time. And before we go, I have a couple of things I want to mention. One of them is, of course, uh, the fundraiser number. Again, 1-800-840-3683 to help uh, give to Counterpunch. Um, and, of course, the PayPal button on the website. Now, last thing, last political issue I want to talk about. Um, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and... Funny thing. I mean, Comrade Bernie. Comrade Bernie. (laughs) Chairman, Chairman Bernie. Um, One thing about this issue that I find really interesting. Look, I, I understand that a lot of people like Bernie and they want to get excited about somebody. And there's, there's, there's a lot of things that he says that are positive, that are good. I, I don't think that anybody who's serious can say that everything he says is terrible. I think that's false. But... There are major problems with Bernie, and one of those things has to do, and I'm not even going to go issue by issue because that'll take forever, the war issue, Palestine, many other things as well, the military-industrial complex, etc. But I think this issue of delusion and the delusion, the collective delusion, a desire to be deluded. I think that this is something very dangerous. I had Paul Street on this show a few months back when we first started Counterpunch Radio, and we talked a little bit about this this uh, very important aspect of liberalism, and that is the desire to, to be deluded despite everything that you see, everything that you hear telling you otherwise, you still want to believe something else. And I think that that is very much true with Bernie Sanders. And I know Alex way back when, I, what, did he, what did he call him? The, the hot air factory from Vermont? Yeah. You know? The hot air, the, yeah, the, the hack Democrat from yeah. Vermont. Yeah. yeah. So, and Alex is... knew Bernie very well. Alex, you know, you would spend a lot of time in Vermont at Andy Kopkind's uh, farm up there. So he he he'd seen you know Bernie from you know his days as as mayor. So he knew him very well. And and we've you know I mean <laughs> people are you know you should see the letters to the editor that we get for our pieces on Sanders. You know how dare you? And it's like how long have you been reading Counterpunch? Because we haven't said a positive word about Bernie Sanders until this year, and we've written you know. I mean, there have been thousands and thousands of words uh, praising Bernie <laughs> on Counterpunch, you know, since he announced. Uh, now, there have been some very, you know, critical pieces as well, you know, including my own. But, you know, what, what I came down to was, you know, look, Bernie says he's an independent and he says he's a socialist and he's running in the Democratic Party, um, a party which has completely bought in to neoliberalism and has never renounced it and will never renounce it. And one of the things that Bernie has pledged, and he's gotten, you know, condescending little pats on the back from, you know, Rachel Maddow and Katrina Vanden and the other doyens of, of the liberal left, <laughs> is that he's not going to do any negative campaigning. Well, how can you not do negative campaigning against a party which has 
implemented policies which you are theoretically at least violently opposed to on the economy, on social welfare, on war and peace. That would be the only justification for me in Bernie running as a Democrat is if he could wage war against the neoliberals on the campaign trail and in the debate to go after Hillary Clinton from the left in these debates in the way that she deserves to be held to account. Um, she to put to be put on trial, you know, by her own party. If you know he, if that is the goal, I think the Democratic Party is completely unredeemable at this point. Um, but that, you know, from my point of view, is would would have been the the sole purpose in running. Um, and Bernie is pledged not to do that, and it's like, well. What the fuck? You know, it's, what are it's, you doing? It's, and and it's a lack of courage on, I think, because, you know, Ralph never had that problem. And, you know, Ralph took, a, I mean, an unbelievable amount of shit, you know, for his campaigns. Yeah. But he understood that the party itself has nothing left to it that is worthwhile from our point of view. And it has to be, and the only way really that you can force it to change is from the outside. You have to be a threat to them from the outside. Otherwise, what is the incentive for them to at all ameliorate, you know, their malign neoliberal policies? There is none. Look, I think an argument could be made, and many people, myself included, have made the argument that not only is there um, nothing to be gained from doing what Bernie is doing, but it is deeply destructive to whatever semblance of a movement we have in terms of a left opposition to the establishment, because what he's actually doing is upholding the left flank of the Democratic Party. He's giving the illusion that the Democratic Party has a progressive populist uh, streak in, within it, where it doesn't, what it what it does have is a PR campaign trying to convince people that this actually still exists within the Democratic Party. It doesn't at all. Now, I think on the one hand, maybe there was something of a miscalculation by the uh, leadership of the Democratic Party. Maybe they didn't think that Hillary Clinton's support would erode in the way that it has over this relatively short amount of time. But I, for one, still believe that two and a half billion dollars is going to have a lot to say about where Hillary Clinton ends up. Well, I mean, let's face it, (laughs) she doesn't even need that much to need to, you know, <laughs> saturation bomb Bernie with that money because she has the super delegates. People forget about this. The Democratic the Republican Party is much more Democratic than the Democratic Party. Yeah. Because the Democrat, you know, and, and you hear, you know, to he- listen to Hillary Clinton talk about voting rights, you know, it's the, <laughs> the height of hypocrisy because blacks voting in her own party's primary their vote is almost worthless because she has this bank of superdelegates which can come in and secure the election for her, even if, you know, by, you know, Bert, by some wild shot, Bernie was able to win the popular vote. She would still run away with the nomination because of the superdelegates. I mean, come on. 
Um, I, I but, think, but I, you're right. You know, and it's it's the, see, this is the role that Dennis Kucinich. Yes, you know, I was just going to say. Yep, exactly. He pioneered it. Dennis, the pioneer. He pioneered this role of you know what, whatever you want to call it, sheep dogging. Uh, uh, but you know, in Bernie's case, it's kind of a phantom role because where are people going to go? I mean, there, there's no place. I mean, is there a left? I don't think there is. Uh, but if there were, there's no Ralph Nader out there. There's no Nader figure uh, that they would go to. I mean, maybe they would stay home. I, I don't know. But yeah, uh, and I, I'm not. And I, when I had Josh Frank. Um, on the program, you know, we talked a little bit about the green party and I understand, you know, Jill Stein and I understand she's probably a perfectly nice lady, whatever, but is the green party even, um, going to mobilize or excite people in any tangible way? I don't think so because if it, if it were the case, I don't think Bernie would have the movement behind him that he does. No, he wouldn't. Um, and now the green party, can energize people at, you know, local, municipal, uh, maybe even some, you know, state house races, some congressional races, uh, and there it can work. And that's what the Green Party is. It's not a, really a national party. Uh, it's a party that is, you know, truly grassroots based. And, you know, in, in states like, you know, Vermont or Maine or, you know, uh, some areas of California, Oregon, you know, they can be a force. Um, but at a national level, no, they're not. Well, um, and I have to say also, and uh, I'm sure there you, you might get one or two angry emails about this statement, but part of the reason why you won't hear me talking too positively about the Green Party is I think that they lack courage on a lot of issues, especially on international issues. How much does the Green Party really take an anti-imperialist position? How often does the Green Party really speak out on issues of, of uh, wars abroad? I don't think they do it very much at all. They, they, they do a lot of what Bernie has done, talking about populist economic issues, environmental issues, what have you, which are important, no doubt. But the U.S. is an, is an empire waging war around the world, and if you can't talk about that in a forceful way and mobilize people around that it, at a moment when there is no anti-war movement and it's crying out for somebody to magnetize it, to mobilize it, I, I don't know how much how much worth there is. No, you're 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 worthless as a national, you know, political party. Exactly. I mean, you should you should hang it up, and they have effectively hung it up as a national party. I mean, I they agree. are. They're not a, they're not a force. And you have two war parties. And but, may, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe there will be a, a you know, anti, you know, I mean, there may be a, a, a more forceful anti-war movement, you know, on the right at this point than there is on the left. I mean, uh, Rand Paul, I think, has been an extreme disappointment, but um he talks on those issues much more forcefully than any sort of leading, you know, democratic political figure. And that is a pathetic state of affairs. Yeah, believe exactly. me, because, you know, Paul is, you know, craven and hypocritical. And um, um, but, you know, he's launched some filibusters. Uh, uh, he's, you know, stood up against the, the war in Syria and uh, tried to, you know, to uh, stand up against, you know, the crazies who, you know, want to nuke Iran. And he should be given, you know, 
some credit for that. Uh, he brought he brought the bill before Congress to oppose what Obama was doing in Libya uh, via the executive order and and so forth. Right. But uh, I, I mean, again, I just it it is very disheartening to me when I see pro- so called you know progressives on the left lining up behind Bernie Sanders or Jill Stein when neither one of them will say a word about international issues of the of life and death for the majority of the globe no they won't yeah well and, you know i mean i mean that's been you know that's been you know bernie's i know it's his bread CA, you know for his entire political career i mean one of the very first pieces that we ran in the online edition of counterpunch was a resignation letter from bernie's staff written by uh, uh yep. aggressive jeremy bratcher uh, and it was over Bernie's support for Clinton's war on Serbia. Exactly. And so this was an independent socialist supporting a crazy cruise missile war against an independent socialist country. Yep. That's uh, right. And he's most vigorous. He's most vigorous in supporting wars against socialist countries. Isn't that interesting? Exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, okay, we're we're just about He's a self-hating independent <laughs> Self-hating. God, yeah. you you worked it in there. Well done. Um okay, before we go, a uh, couple couple of couple of housekeeping things here. Number 1, again, the uh fundraiser people need to really think about supporting Counterpunch right now. It's so crucial. Keep this project uh, going and and help Counterpunch to keep expanding. Uh, 1-800-840-3683 is the number, the PayPal button on the website as well. Now, here is a final point that I want to make about Counterpunch, though. We've talked a lot about political issues. Um, Counterpunch focuses on economic issues as well, you know, the environment and all of these other things. One other thing that Counterpunch does that I always really appreciate is it does bring a cultural element to it, whether uh, book reviews, film reviews, uh, music, you know, what, what, what have you. So I think that that is really important. So speak a little bit, if you could, Jeff, about the importance of infusing culture, uh, not only into Counterpunch, but into the conversation on the left, because I mean, Jesus, what 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 culture even really exists on the left anymore? Well, well, not very much. But uh, I mean, I, you know, look, I live for music. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, I mean, most of uh, I can't get through the day, you know, unless I've you know listened to, you know, Coltrane or Peter Tosh. Uh, it's very hard. And uh, I'm caressing. Alex, I'm Alex caressing was, a Sun Ra record as we speak. <laughs> there you go. Um, and uh, music is politics um, in the same way that, uh, you know, my, my favorite filmmaker, Jean-Luc Godard, said, you know, you know, morality is a track can be a tracking shot. And we have to understand that um, politics happens everywhere. It happens in, in food. It happens in art. It happens in music um, and uh, and film. I mean, less so here. It's it's a it's a constant struggle because we are so saturated, you know, in you know, corporate co-optation of you know, uh, 
what we eat and 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 how we dress and what we listen to, you know, and it's become much easier now that every little mouse click, uh, you know, on on the web is 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 tracked by Amazon or you know or whoever to you know sort of find out what your hidden tastes are, but uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, this is it. It should be a vital you know part of our political lives. Um, art and and music and and theater and and film it's one of the things that of course you know brought uh alex and i together we were you know i mean god forbid you know we were you know political science majors in college we were both uh english literature majors and uh you know we would uh you know have a lot of fun sort of throwing quotes from you know auden or uh or 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 blake to each other, you know, so name that poem. I mean, we did that all of the time. We also, you know, loved the blues. I mean, it's one of the things that, and, and we would have some of our most uh, vicious fights in a good natured way were, you know, over, you know, who was the better blues musician? Was it Howling Wolf? Was it Muddy Waters? You know, who's the greatest guitarist? You know, was it, uh, well, can't no. we all can't we all just agree that it was Chess Records family? Uh, it was the Chess Records family. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that what, um, what would have happened without them? Sure. Well, exactly. I mean, there's a, a funny story about you know the Rolling Stones, of course. You know, come over and they want to go to Chicago uh, to see Chess Records, and uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger sort of you know walk through the door. And uh, there's Otis Spann, the great uh, uh, blues piano player, and Muddy Waters <laughs> painting the walls in uh, in the Chess Records studio. Um, and uh, you know, there you go. It's I, a, I don't think Mick and Keith didn't didn't offer to uh, help them out. I w- <laughs> which they, uh, I, tells I tells you a lot that. about them. No, they might have been thinking whether or not they could sue them somehow um yeah i mean god this could go on for a long time if we really start talking music here um look i think that it's i think that it's really important um you know you mentioned you guys were english lit majors my bachelor's was in art history i have a creative writing degree my background is in the arts i don't i never formally studied journalism i never formally studied political science or anything because well i guess i had a little bit of sense in that regard um but i do think that it's really important and it's 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 quite frankly lost within the alternative media world the alternative media you look at it you look at all these various outlets and i don't need to name them people know who i'm talking about what culture is really coming through there i think that it's very little it's very limited spectrum you know to use the chomskyan analogy you know it's a very it's a very rigid framework of debate when it comes to cultural issues and i think that counterpunch is constantly pushing the envelope on that point as well and um the you know I I always love the feature I don't know is Counterpunch even still doing it anymore where we would have um, uh, what we're listening to what the staff is listening to well, well we we had that for 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 many years I know, I know it just became uh, it became uh, 
impossible to keep up with it just from my point of view. And if I couldn't have what, you know, write about what I was listening to, I wasn't going to allow anyone else to do it. Well, I'm going to start uh, a vigorous letter writing, <laughs> letter writing campaign for people now, to demand that it come back. There's a lot of pressure to, to resurrect that. And uh, I, I guess we will. So <laughs> sounds good. All right. Um, I think we're just about out of time. In fact, we're more than out of time, but um, I want to thank you for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Finally, I want to profusely apologize as I promise prostrate myself before you for spending 21 weeks until I got you on the yes. program. And um, again, fundraising time, people. Fundraising time for Counterpunch. 1-800-840-3683. Go on the website. Give, give, give to Counterpunch. It's so important. Jeff St. Clair, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Eric Dredzer.